Well, we've had a blessed season. Uh, the time we had at the memorial service with Dave Diaz, God's Spirit moved and touched so many hearts. And this last Sunday was a uniquely blessed Sunday morning where God just really was there. His presence was there and really ministered. And so we trust as we start the first year or the beginning of the year, 2023 here in the book of Exodus, that uh, it'll be equally as sweet. And uh, my year goal is that I try to stay close to 30 minutes here so we can have some question and answer time and, uh, and also some time just to pray and, and seek the Lord and worship and prayer. So the book of Exodus, it is the word departure. That's what it means. They're departing from Egypt. And this is the second book of the Torah. That's the Hebrew word for law or the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, the first five books. Often called the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, uh, and so um, originally though, it would have just been one continuous big book. All the scrolls would have been together. Um, now, we're going to learn as we go on to the, the, the Pentateuch here, we're going to see that Moses takes these writings and he sets them by the ark. And uh, no doubt they, they, they would have to be rewritten because the papyrus and, and, and so forth would begin to fade, the ink type stuff they did use. We, we do know... Jewish history has that Ezra is the one that actually compiled all of the writings up through that time and put them into books and into order. And also Jeremiah uh, and or Jeremiah uh, is really sort of the editor. So they did make some edit, edits along the ways because uh, the way you write letters change and different words change. And so to try to give it the meaning, there were additions that changed. But Moses is the writer of this. As a matter of fact, uh, all through Exodus and Exodus 17, 14, we see where the Lord told Moses to write these things down. In Exodus 24, 4, Moses wrote all of the words of the Lord. In Exodus 34, 27 through 28, write these words, uh, the Lord says to Moses, and write them according to the tenor in which I'm giving you this covenant. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, which was the Ten Commandments. And, and then, of course, as we look at the other books of the Torah, several of them also do the same thing, where clearly Moses is the one writing it down. The only exception would be at the very end when there is uh, some verses on Moses' death. I don't think he wrote about his death after he died. <laughs> you know, uh, Joshua, no doubt, wrote that in there. That would be one of the exceptions. And then, of course, whatever additions Ezra or, and or Jeremiah made. And so um, these first five books are attributed uh, to Moses also in the New Testament, a lot of verses in there. Matter of fact, all five books of the Torah uh, are in the New Testament said that Moses write them. So you'll find verses out of Exodus saying Moses wrote it. You'll find verses out of Leviticus saying Moses wrote it. You'll find a whole bunch of verses out of Deuteronomy all saying Moses wrote it and so forth. So all five books. Jesus uh, in Matthew 19, 8 
Um, he said, Moses because, wrote this because of the hardness of your heart. In Mark 7, 10, Moses said, honor your father and mother. In Luke 16, 31, Jesus said, if you did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will you be persuaded though one were to rise from the dead. I love that in Luke 24, remember the road to the Emmaus Road when Jesus sort of hid the fact of who he was and and he said, he said, from the beginning of Moses and all through the prophets, he expounded them the scriptures and the things concerning himself, the Messiah. And uh, Luke 24, 44, also, um, he talks about how the, the law was given through Moses. The Torah was written by Moses. I love John 5, 46 and 47. It says, for if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And um, so it's interesting that, that he says Moses wrote the word of God and he wrote about Jesus the Messiah. And if you had faith in Moses' words, you'd have faith in me and vice versa. Also John seven nineteen and John seven twenty two, and then also others. Paul and, and uh, Peter and, and uh, others wrote this too in Acts 3.22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, and he quotes, in Romans 10.19, uh, he, he said, Did not Israel know? First Moses says, quoting Deuteronomy 32.11, I will provoke you but to jealousy, and he goes on. In 1 Corinthians 9.9, for it's written in the law of Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, he says Moses wrote that. Hebrews 10.28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Boy, I read that verse this week. It really just pierced my heart. Because I don't know if you know, but a couple of weeks ago, the United Methodist Church had a giant worldwide split. And they actually voted whether they were going to keep the statement in their bylaws saying marriage is only between a man and a woman and homosexuality, just as the Bible says, is sin. Well, the overwhelming Western world of the United Methodist Church said, get rid of that, because they already have many lesbian and, and uh, homosexual pastors and, and so forth. They're getting around it. Even though they're doing it illegally, they can do it because the churches and the districts and so forth are allowing them. But because the United Methodist Church is worldwide, the rest of the world said no. So they actually got out, outvoted. But it was just so grievous how they, they just were so prideful in their heart about how right they were that homosexuality was perfectly fine and out of sin and transgendered. The whole thing is wonderful, wonderful, and it's, it's just the way Jesus wanted it, you know? And then I read that verse in Hebrews 10, 28 this week. If anyone has rejected Moses' law, wow, dies without mercy on the testimony of truth witnesses. And I, I thought, what a fitting verse with reading on that, and, and other denominations too. It's not just the United Methodist Church. Apostasy is coming. You know, the Lord's not going to return until the apostasy comes first, the falling away, and it's happening right before our eyes. So all five books are attributed to Moses uh, in the New Testament, directly or indirectly, quoting all five books of the Torah. 
and attributing them to Moses. So on the conclusion of that, one, the book of Exodus itself says Moses wrote it. Number two, other parts of the Torah states that Moses wrote it. Uh, number three, the New Testament writers attribute it to Moses' authorship. And then the Jewish tradition has been unanimous throughout history that these are the books of Moses. He's the one who wrote them. And I, I say this because there's liberals now who, who basically try to chop every book of the Bible to shreds and try to prove that this was written probably even after AD or written you know, a few years before Christ came. They, they, they really try to destroy your confidence in the scripture. And so again, I think the old saying is, if Jesus thought it was written by Moses, it was written by Moses, right? And he definitely did. So as we remember looking at Genesis, it was really a book about the beginnings, you know, creation itself. Uh, the first of many things of man, of woman, of marriage, of children, of sin, etc. It was the beginning of choosing God of the nation of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Israel. Um, lastly, covering the 12 sons of Jacob. And then they all, how it all ended in they were all ended up in Egypt. It's interesting, at the very beginning of Abraham's life in Genesis 12, he didn't inquire of the Lord. There was a famine. He went down to Egypt. That was absolutely not God's will. He brought back Hagar and a lot of hardship for him and Israel as a nation to this day because of that trip down to Egypt. In Genesis 12, he had no business going. But then the book of Genesis ends by God telling them to go to Egypt. So... That's, that's a pretty interesting uh, story. And, you know, truth is, or life, or facts, or what is that? Life is, is stranger than fiction. And, uh, and, and of course, we, we remember an interesting prophecy in Genesis 15. Remember in chapter 14, Abraham and 318 guys saved Lot and all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and didn't take anything, and, and God revealed himself to, to Abraham as Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the God of, uh, the priest of God most high. And then in chapter 15, he's like, oh, I'm never going to have kids. Eleazar, your kids will be my, the ones I, you know, his servant, your kids will be the ones that get everything. And, and God spoke to him and said, go outside and look outside. He said, see how many stars? Can you count them? No. He said, that's how many kids you're going to have in one of the most important verses in all the Bible, Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then God said, let's make a covenant. Now, in those days, you had cut an animal in half, several. And they cut the, Abraham did it, cut them in half. And then you walk through the two halves of them before you burn them. And, and you say, hey, I'll keep my half, and you keep your half. And that's the way it went. But remember, God didn't show up. He kept saying he was going to show up. He never did. And vultures were trying to get the meat, which would desecrate the purity of them. And, and then Abraham finally just passed out. He just went to sleep. And in this sleep, he saw that he did have kids like the stars of the heavens. And they were all slaves in bondage and suffering. And he woke up and he realized God came while I was asleep and went through the middle. And we see there that God, in essence, is saying, I'll keep my half and I'll keep your half. I'm not trusting you. And how salvation's by the work of God alone. 
and by his faithfulness alone, not dependent upon us and our faithfulness. But boy, it left Abraham scratching his head going, I, th I thought having kids is what would make my life abundant. And now I really don't want to have any kids at all because they're going to all end up as slaves. And God said to him, yep, I, just like I promised you, you're going to have kids like the stars of the heaven. But they are going to leave this nation and be out and go to another nation. And for four generations or 400 years, they will be in a horrible, difficult life until I deliver them out of it. And Abraham had to say, what, what did God say to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 15? I am your reward. It's me. The thing you're longing for, Abraham, is not kids. It's me. And once you have kids, they're going to make you as unhappy as they make you happy. <laughs> they're going to make you, you're going to, you're going to realize that you're going to give and give and, and then they're going to hardly recognize you even exist. And, and it comes back to me. It's in me. It's where you'll have abundant life. And so now we, we discover in this rather strange story of Genesis 15, the, the truth of it, the strange land was Egypt. And the 400 years of being there would be in Egypt. So Genesis is a book of beginnings. Exodus is a book of deliverance and redemption. Let's just imagine yourself for a minute. You got the book of Genesis, and then the next thing we know, Joshua is leading the children of Israel into the promised land. And you didn't have the Torah. You start asking yourself, what would we not know? How much of the New Testament we wouldn't understand? Chuck Smith um, mentions on this where one-seventh, let me read, read that quote there by Chuck. It says, so we can see how the first part of the chapter one of Exodus is really just a continuation of the book of Genesis. And again, written by Moses. And it's interesting that five books of Moses comprise almost one-seventh of the entire Bible. They comprise almost as much as two-thirds of New Testament. And if God denotes one-seventh of the book to one particular period of history and study, eventually as basic and fundamental, and God wants us to really know it and understand it. Which book is the most quoted book in the New Testament? Deuteronomy. So imagine if we did not have the Torah. Maybe we had the book of Genesis and not the next. Guys, the foundation of all we can understand in the New Testament comes through these stories come through God revealing his nature to us through dealing with the children of Israel. And so this is, again, one of those sad parts, how most Christians don't read the Bible, don't know the Bible. And, uh, you know, I told my wife this week, just for fun, I'm going to try to watch one of the Bible programs about this. So there was one called Exodus, God and Kings. You know, it was with that guy, Bell from, uh, you know, I can't remember what movies now. What was his name? Is that anybody? Christian Bell. Yeah, Christian Bell. 
Anyway, I got like 10 minutes into it, and it was like, oh my gosh. They can't get, they can't, I mean, literally, they didn't get one fact right. And it was just so frustrating. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of people, their mentality of what happened in the book of Exodus is what they saw in some movie, the Ten Commandments or something. And they might have a gist, but they have a lot of mistaken ideas. And of course, the real essence and power of it is going to come through the details that we're going to study. And so it's redemption now we're going to learn in the book of Exodus, the book of redemption. Well, let's look at verses one through six. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came from with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Zublin, Benjamin, Dan, Natili, Gad, Asher, all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died in all his brothers and all that generation. So it's interesting that the order is the order we get in Genesis 35, way back there. Remember several different orders the children of Israel end up getting put into as we study that second part. Remember the second half of Genesis is really on the life of Jacob and Joseph and, and, and his brothers and how they treat. So we would look at these names. If you've been studying through Genesis with us, boy, these names are not just a bunch of words on a page to us, are they? We have several stories now. We have prophecies. We have meat to put to the bones of these names like Judah or Levi or Benjamin. We know about stories on these guys. So what do we have? The very end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, remember, Joseph was 110 years old and he died and they prepared his body to eventually take it back to the land of promise but it was buried in some fashion. Later, it'd be, his bones would be taken with him. So he was 17 when he went to Egypt. He was 110 when he died. So that means he was there 93 years. So, so far at the end of the, the book of Genesis, let's just round it off and say they were there about 100 years. And now as we come to the beginning of Exodus, it's about 300 years later because they've been a total at this time of 400 years in the land of Egypt, as prophesied out of Genesis chapter 15. And so we've got this list of names, and it just ties right into it. So Joseph died, they buried, prepared his body, getting it ready to take back to the promised land some days. Now these again, once again, are the names. So it's sort of an introduction, but a flowing from Genesis right in to Exodus. Now the question is going to come up, who is the Pharaoh? <laughs> Which Pharaoh did Joseph know way back at the beginning that gave him such favor? Which Pharaoh did the children of Israel have for the 400 years while they were there? And of course, most importantly, who is the Pharaoh that Moses had to confront at the end? The one that end up dying in the Red Sea is all they, they chased with him and his armies. Um, chased them all in. If you didn't know that, sorry for the spoiler alert. But um, th this is a, a difficult question because there really isn't much information on this. Definitely not in the Bible, especially as we're going to go on and read. I mean, 
God goes into crazy detail describing some of the heathen kings and, and talking about how they look, sometimes letting us know what, if they're right-handed or left-handed and who they killed and their empire and how many chariots they had. I mean, God goes into crazy detail. But here, he gives us no detail. It was just a Pharaoh. Just to mix, just to mix everything up, if you studied this in the past and you think you had a good idea, well, this last year, they've turned the Egyptian dating system upside down on its head. And they are reshuffling the deck now about which Pharaoh was first, second, and third, and, and so forth. So whatever I've been studying this last week, way too long in this Pharaoh stuff, um, it really, it's almost insignificant now. But the Bible itself does not name a Pharaoh. I wonder if an enemy, if the fact that God is trying to not remember the name is, is something he's done on purpose. Sort of the obscurity is uh, ironic judgment of God because these guys, they were famous. These pharaohs, from the moment they were born, they were thinking about how can my name last forever? You know, building themselves burial chambers and getting gold to put with them and pyramids. And, and it's interesting that the book of Proverbs and Psalms does talk about this, that, that God's punishment on certain kings like this Pharaoh here may be to, that their name doesn't get remembered. Proverbs 10.7, the memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. In Psalms 9, verse 4 through 8, or 5 through 8, you have rebuked the nations, you have destroyed the wicked, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. Wow. O enemy destruction are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities, even their memory have, has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever, he has prepared his throne and for judgment, he will judge the world in righteousness, he will shall administer judgment for the peoples and uprightness. Also Psalm 109, verse 15. Let them be continually before the Lord that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Talking about the wicked. So it's, it's an important point to say, it seems the Bible purposely is not letting this Pharaoh have praise, even from the negative side of the story. Sort of as a part of the judgment of God that he's not mentioned. And far as the historicity of the story, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's, we're curious creatures, so we really want to know. So it's interesting that there is so much information on this and so lacking information on this. So you have a group of people trying to go into the archaeological records and sort out the various dynasties and then trying to ask yourself, hey, do we, know, do we see any archaeological evidence that marks the time when the Hebrews were there? And then we can correlate that with the pharaohs of that time. That's what we want to do, right? But it's very difficult. Um, typically, when kingdoms suffered in battle greatly, you'd hear nothing about that battle. Now, if they were victorious, you got volumes on it. Often, kings, the time they got the throne, 
They wanted their name alone to be known. They do everything they could to destroy the, the name of the previous king. We have in Babylon, the entire palace that Nebuchadnezzar built, every brick had his name on it. <laughs> because it's like you can tear down this whole thing and my, my name is still going to be found. So it is interesting that we're not, there's a number of reasons why. We're going to discover today that one whole kingdom disappeared and a whole new kingdom started. And when that whole new kingdom started, I'm sure they did everything they could to whitewash and get rid of all of the past history of the other people, making it look like they've always been the pharaohs of Egypt and there has been no other. And this is what we basically find in this record. But there's two possible ways to date this era. So is this, this is probably more than you guys want to cover, huh? I know, but I, I just felt led to do it. I'll do it as quickly as I can. Um, okay. First Kings chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. And it came to pass in 480 year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, and which is the second month that has began to build the house of the Lord. So they barely started building the first temple of Solomon, and they make a note that they left the land of Egypt 480 years earlier. So 480 years after they left Egypt, they started the building of the temple. Now, I don't know if they were trying to say this was, took a long time, or, hey, it was, only took us 480 years, this was quick. But either way, he, he's laying down a number. And, and it's interesting because Solomon's temple dating is, is a well-known number. Six, five, we would say today, 965 B.C. So almost uh, about 1,000 years before Christ, but 965 B.C., and so when we look at Moses' last Pharaoh, not first Pharaoh, sorry, typo in there, last Pharaoh, and then you tag on 880 years previously, so we go backwards, that would take us to the year 1445 B.C. And who would be the, what Egyptian era would that be? It would be that of Amenhotep II. Amenhotep II, who is the seventh pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. Now, during this time, the Egyptian history indicates a sudden lack of military action by Amenhotep II, beginning in 1446. Wow. So this, these seem to parallel. A fact that would be consistent with the loss of nearly the entire army at the end of the Red Sea. Uh, we know they were all destroyed in Exodus 14. And ancient records also claim that Amenhotep's successor, um, Tutmose IV, was not the true heir, which, again, would make sense since Amenhotep's uh, firstborn would have died, um, as we know they, that the firstborn child died if they didn't put blood on the door of the, ho of the post of the house which then would, under, would make sense why the heir wasn't his son going to the next stage. But then there's another one that was, it's the first one, more popular way of looking at it from just purely an archaeological evidence place. 
And that would put it around 1290 BC. And if that's the case, you have Seti I, 1290 to 1279 BC. And he was the son of Ramses I, and he was the father of Ramses II. This is the, the more famous Pharaoh. If you look at all the Hollywood shows, they all have Ramses II as the Pharaoh that Moses is fighting against. There are some indications that that might be more correct. In Genesis 47, 11, and Joseph uh, situated his father and his brothers and gave them possessions of the land of Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramses. There it is. Or Ramses, Ramesses. They have different ways of spelling it and saying that name. As Pharaoh had commanded. Also in Exodus 1.11, in this very chapter tonight, they built a, a supply city by Pithon and Ramesses. The children of Israel had, had done that. In GodQuestions.com, they have a whole lengthy article on this, but it, it, they, their takeaway was it was unlikely to have been Ramesses, despite Hollywood's fondness for that figure. Most likely, it was Amenhotep II, the seventh pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. But it also might be Neferhotep, the first of the 13th dynasty, or less probably Tutankhamun. Some are now putting that name forward. So besides the lack of certainty of which pharaoh we're dealing with, there are some clear, significant archaeological finds in Egypt and also in Canaan. In Egypt has been discovered a mud and straw bricks are featured in some pyramids. We're going to cover this in Exodus 5 where Pharaoh gets mad and takes the straw away but orders them to keep making the bricks that, but they don't have enough straw. A fact that uh, congruent with the writings after the evidence of the ascetic people enslaved in Egypt. Number two, objects described as rods and staffs used by the court advisors which look like snakes. Remember, we're going to cover that story in Exodus 7, where they throw down the snake, or throw down the rod, and it turns into a snake. And then Ipur Papyrus depicts the time of trouble in Egypt, and this is how it reads. Plague stalked through the land, blood is everywhere. Nay, but the river is blood, gates, columns, walls are consumed with fire. The son of the highborn man is no longer to be recognized. The strange people from outside are coming to Egypt, nay, but corn has perished everywhere. Archaeologists have discovered evidence of a large slave town called Cahun. It shows evidence of a hasty desertion, including the abandonment of household possessions and implements like we're going to discover in Exodus 12. They went to the Egyptians and they all gave them their wealth as they left the land. Also in Cahun, the same area, they had a area of mass infant burials. Remember, Pharaoh ordered all the children to be murdered. So um, this, again, are archaeological finds. In the city of Canaan, uh, right on the timeline there, they have evidence of warfare consistent with conquest depicted in the book of Joshua. That's a later date. What do other people think? John MacArthur, he's a good Bible guy. People respect what he have to say. Well, he goes with the first one, the first Kings 6 more. He says Moses would have been born about 1525 B.C., so 80 years old, and there it is, 1445 B.C. That, was, that would be consistent 
with the temple being built 480 years later. Um, he became learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, this is Moses, out of Acts 7, while growing up in the courts of Pharaoh, Tutmos the first and the second, and Queen um, Hatshepsut. Queen Hatshepsut was sort of a co-regent for a time, uh, and she could have very well been the one who took Moses out of the basket. Again, sorry for the spoiler alerts there. Um, but John MacArthur goes on to say, he was a self-imposed Midianite exile during the reign of Tutmose III and another 40 years, that'd be Acts 7.30, and returned at God's direction to Israel's leader early in the reign of Amenhotep II, the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And J. Vernon McGee has a different one. He goes with the other one. We're talking about uh, another name of, of the Hycosis, which they, he believes was the Pharaoh during Joseph's first stay. They were actually shepherd kings. They were a nomadic people that settled in Egypt in the 15th to the 17th dynasty and later was overthrown by a military leader, Amasis, um, and overthrew the Hycosis kings and disposed them and made them Pharaoh. And so it would have been, and J. Vernon McGee would have put Ramesses II, like the Hollywood group does, as the Pharaoh of that time. Well, that's it on that. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. God's amazing. I don't think anybody could put this many words of emphaticness in, in one sentence. Look at this. Fruitful, increased, abundantly, multiplied, grew, exceedingly, mighty, and the land was filled with them. I mean, can you believe this verse? And it's correct. <laughs> in other words, he's saying that he really stepped on the gas, causing the population boom. We're going to see shortly uh, as we get into like numbers, he's going to point out there are 600,000 men of 20 years old and above. And you do the math of women and children, you, you end up close to 3 million people. Minimally, you're looking at 2 million. You're probably looking at something around 3 million or above. Most would, would so. And we're going to go into that when, when we get there. But remember, this is, this is saying God promised what he said he would do to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, like in Genesis 15, 5, he brought him outside and said, look now at the star, towards heaven and count the stars. If you're able to number them, he said, so shall your descendants be. In Genesis 26, 4, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 28, 14, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, you shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and you and your seed and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, in verse 8 now, now arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, this may seem just like a very casual verse to you, but it's very interesting when you look at the best commentary on the Bible. You guys know what that is, right? The Bible. Notice Stephen, when he's giving a, a sermon at his judgment 
by the Pharisees and so forth, the Sanhedrin, he records, he, he's given his account of the whole history of Israel, and he says something interesting there. In, in Acts 7.18, he said, and, and tell another king arose who did not know Joseph. Now, what's significant about this is we just read in, in Exodus, and a new king came. That sounds like, oh, there's somebody else. That happens all the time. But in Acts 7.18, he uses a unique word for another king. You see, in the Greek, you have two words for another. You have the Greek, the word heteros, which means one of a different kind. So if I hand you a cup of coffee and you take a sip and I watch your face go, ugh, too strong, I don't like it, and you set it down, and I'll say, do you want another? And I use the word heteros, it means no coffee, but like tea or water. So do you want something different to drink? Then there's the other Greek word, alos. And this word is one of the same kind. I see you finish the cup of coffee really quick and you set it down. And I'm like, would you like another, another cup of coffee? I use the word alos. Well, Stephen uses the word heteros, which means one of a different kind. If you look at the Greek word, it literally means a fresh, a fresh new type. Something other than what you've previously had. Where else do we find a verse on this? Isaiah 52, verse 4. Verse, thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then an Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now this is radical because he says this new Pharaoh was actually an Assyrian. Now, as we look at the Egyptian culture during the time of Joseph, remember it says, and Joseph was put into the house of Potiphar, who was an Egyptian. It was almost like, why, why would you have to say that? Unless there was such a mixture, the odds of you getting an Egyptian wouldn't have been high. There wasn't that many actually Egyptians in Egypt at this time. There was a, a conglomerate of all kinds of other people. Now, we do know during the time of Ramses II, they had a huge fight with the Hittites. That was a constant battle, and they were worried about them. But again, an Assyrian could have came in there and been one of the leaders of the Hittite armies. I mean, we, we don't know what, what happened. Now, was, he, was Isaiah talking literally? Because at the time, Isaiah, the Assyrians had just destroyed the, not Judah and, and, and Benjamin and, and Jerusalem, but the rest of Israel were just, just devastated by the Assyrians. So is he sort of calling Pharaoh an Assyrian, sort of like we would call somebody a Hitler? You know, oh, that guy's a Hitler. And we're, we're basically, not literally, he's, he's a Nazi uh, from the Nazi party, but we're just saying, we, we, we all understand when we say Hitler, that's like the worst possible leader is that the way Isaiah is writing that? He's saying, oh, yeah, that, that first Pharaoh, he was like an Assyrian, just the worst possible type of leader you can imagine. Or was it something specific? So what I, I think happened during that 400-year period, at the end of that time, maybe at the end of 300 years or 200 years into it, there was just a complete takeover of Egypt from a completely different people. And during that time, 
only those who were a part really of the Egyptian empire were fighting. Everybody else was just sort of on the, the sidelines while you had this coup go on. And it was a completely different group of people because they did not know the history of Egypt. They didn't understand how greatly Joseph and the Hebrews blessed Egypt and saved Egypt. Because when that first group of Egyptians, history went on, and man, you're the Hebrews, who are these people? Well, Joseph, the first Hebrew here, man, he saved our lives. He saved the world's life. And we honor those, those Hebrews. But then something happened where, no, we disdain those Hebrews, and, and they put them into slavery. It was a completely different type of Pharaoh that ruled in that season. Well, in verse 9 through 12, and he said to his people, look, the people of the, is of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. So they, they realized, man, there's so many of these guys. There's so few of us in comparison that if those millions of people who are treating horribly um, decide to join our enemy, we're, we're toast. There's no way we can win just if, they, if they, the uprise of the people in our land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities of Pithom and Ramses. And the more they aff afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Boy, there's a whole insight story in there, isn't it? Like James 1, you know, rejoice in those trials, right? And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So they, they put people over there just trying to break them down physically where they would have no strength and maybe not have sex and not have any more kids um, or just break them down physically. If they did try to fight with the enemies, they, they wouldn't be physically uh, strong enough to really do any damage against them. But again, James 1 does say, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because the more they were in trials, more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew. And isn't that what happens in trials? We grow. Knowing the testing of our faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So God does use that trial period of our life. Just stop for a moment and just think about this. 400 years in Egypt. That's twice the length of time our country has existed. But imagine you, you grow up in slavery. You watch all your aunts and uncles and grandparents and parents, and then your kids are slaves, and they're beaten by taskmasters. Think as a parent watching your own child getting beat by a taskmaster, or you're watching your elderly dad getting beat by a taskmaster, or your mom getting kicked to the side. What a trial that would have been. Well, finishing up this chapter tonight in verses 13 to 22. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. <laughs> Boy, what a description. They made them serve, and it was just rigorous. And they made their lives bitter and hard and bondage and mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. And all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, and of whom the name of the one 
was uh, Zephira, and the name of the other was Pua. Um, I, knew, I knew her brother, Winnie. Winnie the Pua? Anyway. <laughs> and he said, when you do the duties of the midwife or the Hebrew woman and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, um, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why are you, have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are lively and give birth before the midwives can get to them. Therefore God dealt with all the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided them households for them. They had their own children and ended up having their own homes. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born to you shall be cast into the river and every daughter shall sa- you shall save alive. So they had these birthing stools. It was like a stone that they would grab onto on the sides. And then they would put their knees onto the flat stone like a backward like the, the animals would do, and then they would push, and, and they would catch, the midwife would be behind and catch the baby. And he said, that baby come out, the moment nobody else can see around you, snap its neck and kill it. We call that today partial birth abortion. Bill Clinton got that legalized, right? <laughs> you can abort right up to the ninth month. But then he, he says, hey, I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed to kill him. I don't care. They could be three months old. Soon as, as soon as we know there's a boy there, it's getting chucked into the Nile River and ate by the crocodiles. We're, we're, we're not going to allow any of these sons. They're, they're like cattle to us. These slaves are like animals to us, and we can kill them at will, and there's no um, sin in it. There's no moral problems in it. And so... They lied to Pharaoh saying, oh, they, they gave birth too quick. Now, some people have a hard time with that going, God bless them for lying. Yes, because when two absolutes collide, you need to do the greater good. So killing a baby or lying to a king, you're not doing the lesser evil. I'm doing the lesser evil lying. No, you're doing the greatest good. Corey Tenboom and her sister had this argument because her sister believed that if Nazis knocked at the door as they were hiding Jews in their house, that her sister believed you always had to tell the truth no matter what. And so she, she her, her, Corey and her dad said, don't ever answer the door then. Because <laughs> are there Jews here? Yes, there are. And she just trusts the Lord to work it all out. They're just like, no, because Corey and her dad are like, absolutely not. Nobody's here because they had babies and old people they were trying to take care of. But it's interesting how, how some people, um, you know, they, they could have just said, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to, to Nebuchadnezzar, right? No, we're not bowing it down. Well, I'm going to cash in the fire. So heat it up seven times hotter. Now you're going to bow? Still not going to bow down. Kill me. They could have said that. Hey, I don't care what you say. I don't care if you are Pharaoh. We're not going to kill any babies, whether they're slave babies or any babies. We're not going to kill them. You're nuts. And, and get killed by Pharaoh. But they didn't choose that. They thought, we'll just get replaced until they find somebody who will do it. So it'd be better if we pretend to, to do it and, and, you know, kick the ball down the road as far as we can several months. 
uh, before we have to revisit this conversation with Pharaoh, very possibly. Well, ending here tonight, in Romans 15, 4, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. All these things were written. They were really applying to us after the resurrection of Christ. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? All the people for thousands of years of history read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, and they only understood it in part. But it was really for us that Exodus was written. For us in that period after Christ rose from the dead, these last 2,000 years, that God really wrote this for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now all these things happened to them, the children of Israel, as examples that they were written for our admonition, our teaching, our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It's us that the children of Israel went through what they went through, and God revealed himself for us in these days to know. Well, Lord, thank you for your word again tonight. Thank you for the time we've had together. And bless it, Lord, just as we answer some questions and spend time praying and seeking you. Make it a sweet night tonight in Jesus' name. Any questions anybody has? Yes. Yeah, when you're oppressed, you know, it's like a battered woman leaving the house. You know, why not they just pack up and leave when her husband goes to work? I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, they weren't able to do it. They were afraid. I don't know. guess after 400 years of being beat down, like you said, one guy would raise up. You know, that was part of that, that movie I was watching with Kristen Bell. When Moses returned, he was teaching everybody how to use swords and bow and arrows. And, and it's like, what? That was when he returned from Midian. That's what he was doing. I'm, that's it. I'm done. I can't do any more of this. But yeah, you know, some guy could have raised up. And, and said, hey, we're more of us. We're, we're a lot stronger than these uh, weak Egyptians. We could take over this place or just turn to Egypt, but they didn't. Good question. Yeah, anybody else? Yes. Yes, I actually studied on that again this week. We covered that in, in uh, Genesis 47 when they used the 70 number then. And it could, yeah, it, it, you, it goes into quite a bit of detail. Um, on how to, yeah. Well, the reason Stephen and Acts said 70, 75 rather than 70 is because he was quoting the Greek Septuagint. And in the Greek Septuagint, they have 75, even in Genesis 47, and also in Exodus 1. They all have 75 rather than 70. Now, there's a number of reasons why that number is. You know, some of them say because Joseph was already in Egypt and there, was, there weren't being counted. There's a number of, of ways of looking at that. But um, in the addition probably of Ezra or Jeremiah, 
they very possibly could have changed that number as well. Yeah, there, there's been psychological studies on this, you know, the whole basis of why did the Nazis do what they did. And there's books written on it, there's movies made. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It depends on what time of the year, but about 3,000. Yeah. Yeah, it depends, about three to 5,000, depends on what time of year. The reason I know is I've counted several, every month, every month of a year for. It's just fun that when God says Abraham. Count them. He, he could have. Or he, or he wasn't very good at math and God knew that. What I'm saying is Abraham is such an example of faith. Yeah. To me, at least, it's Yeah. Yep. It's a beautiful story. Well, any other questions? Yeah. That was China for a couple of generations that did that, and they've regretted it ever since. But, um, yeah, I mean, we can just think about it and speculate on it, but clearly the threat was the military, so the men were the military threat. That was their main concern, so women can stay, but we need to kill off the men. Yeah. At the time of, not t- the time of Moses, but the time of Isaiah. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. And, but you, you bring that up, like the king, Pharaoh, 
an Assyrian. It's possible. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, good, good. Well, I'll tell you, my heart's just been stirred all week and last week just praying that 2023 would be an exceptional, amazing year for us of what God might do in us as a church and do in us as a light to this very dark world. Ever since that Christmas thing we had that booth, my heart has just been pricked if the children are walking in darkness, you know, it's like uh, Jesus, you know, seeing the people like a sheep without a shepherd, and they are just in darkness, and they are so ready to come to the light, but somehow, how do we reach them? How do we get into the homes? How do we reach? So it's going to have to be in a, mi- a mighty, amazing work of God, like the woman at the well or, or something. So we got that to pray about, and just also just God continually growing us individually, as, as believers and as disciples. Amen?